think democracy is so fragile. It's just words on paper. That, that, that's all it is. Unless citizens stand up and defend those words. And High Noon was really about that. The citizens of Hadleyville are unable to stand up and defend the words that make Hadleyville a genuine entity. Hello and welcome to Culturescape, the show that interviews the geek creators and influencers that built our modern nerd culture. In today's episode, we explore the wonderful classic Western film, High Noon, which this year is celebrating its 70th anniversary. To talk about the film, we have with us the wonderful John Mulholland, a film historian and award-winning documentarian who recently premiered his PBS documentary, Inside High Noon. Uh, which explores both the remarkable 1952 film and the gripping story behind its troubled production. Hi, John. Welcome to Culturescape. How are you? Thank you. Great yeah, to be here. Glad to have you here. Uh, I watched your documentary. I, I'm a huge fan of High Noon. It's it's a, a film my grandpa really loves, and he he helped raise me, and so it was a, a film I saw quite often as a kid. So. <laughs> Uh, I have positive feelings for it, so this is nice to do. So, John, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Uh, how did you become interested in film, and what led you to become a documentarian? Uh, after I got out of the Air Force, I had some trouble finding work within the so-called film world in downtown New York. So I did some jobs of trade magazines. And through that, I met someone who, a man named Curtis Davis, who had been head of PBS, and he had gone out on his own. And at this time, he was just about to start something called Arts Network, which eventually became AMC. And he brought me in on it, and we started just doing documentaries. It was great because it was the first few years of, cable television and there were no rules you do a documentary 36 minutes it would start at eight o'clock be over at 8 36 and the next piece of work would start at 8 37 it might be over at 902 so there were you were free to do as you wish and i got very lucky with the subject matter of many of the documentaries i did and from that uh just gravitated to working out on my own and uh, meeting people and just it, it just happened there was no specific behind it and here I am well excellent uh, glad you are yeah so that's that sounds interesting like cable was a little bit back when you started a little bit of the wild west um, kind of where internet streaming services are a little bit there today uh what brought you to be working on a project about high noon do you have a special connection to the film or what inspired you to take this project on i had always been a huge uh, fan that's the right word admirer of high noon from the first time i saw it i 
was just very, very touched by it. It touched something in me. And I remember my father had taken me to see it. And what I was struck by was so used to the John Wayne image of masculinity where you're always a rock. There's, pardon me. There's no vulnerability. And I was just stunned when Gary Cooper puts his head down on the desk and cries. And he could hear the sobs, the sniffling. And that idea that a man is afraid and cries, not because he's lost a loved one, a, a, a child, a family member. He's crying because he's afraid. And he's crying because he knows he's going to die in a few minutes. And High Noon has always impressed me that way. It was way ahead of its time in showing that aspect of masculinity. And from that, I began just exploring the different layers to it. And each time I would watch it, I find a different uh, aspect of it to admire. And again, here I am. Uh, very influential Western. It's thought as being one of the big films of Western canon. But when High Noon first came out, that was not the attitude towards it, right? You referred to, of course, John Wayne. There was pushback. Can you can you give us an impression about what was it like when High Noon came out 70 years ago? And what was the response to it then versus the response to it now? Then when it first opened, the uh, the mainstream critics it was very positive, it, 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 and it became a big hit. It was nominated for all sorts of awards. No, it, it won the New York Film Critics' Best Picture. It, it was very, very well received, but there were outliers. And there was a man named Andrew Saris, who in the 60s became very influential as a critic, and he champion something called the auteur theory in which the director is the main object everything filters off from the director but high noon wasn't that high noon fred zinnemann the director openly talked about the script was virtually flawless when he first read it the casting had a lot of it have been done. Grace Kelly and that cinematographer had been picked. So he has, Fred Zinnemann talked about High Noon having many authors or auteurs that he wasn't alone. And that was something picked at by the Andrew Saris crowd. And increasingly, Andrew Saris's influence grew exponentially so that film schools and that were children of Andrew Saris. There were others like Howard Hawks, the director, who was offended by the idea of a man begging for help, a professional, that, you, that he just shouldn't do that. And in fact, it's as if, you know, go out there and face the four guys alone because that's what men do. And if you die, well, that's too bad. And John Wayne and Howard Hawks made the Western Rio Bravo a very well-loved Western itself in response to High Noon to show that 
a sheriff doesn't do what uh, Will Kane does at high noon. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, you're fine. I, I was saying with um, John Wayne, the environment that high noon was created in. I, I, this is something that you brought up in your film that I wasn't really aware of. I didn't make the connection, but it was in the McCarthy years when Hollywood is going through its uh, fear of who may or may not be a communist and everything that went on with the American, the uh, Un-Americans Committee. How did that influence things? Yes, uh, Carl Foreman, who wrote the script and had the original idea, ended up being subpoenaed by the House on American Activities Committee and, in fact, had to testify, pardon me. <clears throat> so High Noon was caught up in the witch hunt hysteria the black, from its opening. And Carl Foreman, in fact, put this dialogue that he had experienced in his own life in Los Angeles in 1951, when he was writing, people saying, I can't be a part of you, I know you're wrong, you can't do this, get away, don't be your friend. And it, it, it had an effect on how the film was shot. Fred Zinneman was liberal and he was sympathetic to those who were being blacklisted. So he hired, there are several actors in it. There's one Howell Chamberlain, who's the hotel clerk. He was blacklisted right after. There were nine people blacklisted who were made. Lloyd Bridges was one. And then he had a young family. And he then named names, but... It, it it was caught up in that. Everything about it was part of what High Noon was. And in fact, the whole message behind High Noon is that you stand up for what you believe. You, you, you don't give in. And to me, it's about civic complacency. As much, I, I'm not sure how much someone under a certain age knows about the blacklist or even has a passing uh, awareness of it. Mm. But they do know about what's happening today in America, or at least what I think is happening, my politics. And I think what's happening today is dangerous. I think democracy is so fragile. It's just words on paper. That, that, that's all it is. Unless citizens stand up, and defend those words. And High Noon was really about that. The citizens of Hadleyville are unable to stand up and defend the words that make Hadleyville a genuine entity. The only one who's willing to do it is the marshal. And in fact, Helen Ramirez, the Mexican woman, she understands it too, that if, if you walk away from this and allow it to happen, the town is dead. Democracy is dead. Like you said, a big part of why High Noon works is it's this idea that, you know, at the end of the adventure, that it isn't the town that gets together. You know, it's up to people like in any organization or group. 
people have individual responsibilities and, you know, many times people shirk them. And so it does come down sometimes to one guy or, or no guys at all. Um, how did High Noon come together for the production? It, what, it, I was surprised to learn, and I kind of heard this, uh, there's a lot of rumors around High Noon, but I, I was surprised to learn that High Noon almost did not come together. Getting the financing and getting the talent and putting everything together was quite difficult, no? Yeah, it was an independent production, a black and white movie that in those days when Hollywood was starting to all color, and because there was no real action in it, no scenery like a John Ford Western, there was not a whole lot of gunfights or anything. No one was interested. And they needed $250,000 to make up its meager $750,000 budget. Unfortunately, a Salinas lettuce grower, Bruce Church, heard about it, read the script, and said, I'd like to do this, but the only way I'll do it is if you put Gary Cooper in the lead. <laughs> and that was not anyone's first choice, especially since Cooper had testified as a friendly witness in 1947 for the first House on American Activities Committee hearing. Now, he named no names, he named no scripts, all he was there for was to say, Hollywood is not a nest of communists. We're, we're just regular working people. But nonetheless, they were concerned that how is he going to be with Carl Foreman had been a member of the Communist Party. Fred Zinneman was a known lefty. It, it, they were concerned. You know, it's interesting. Floyd Crosby, the cinematographer, who was blacklisted after him, I'm not sure your age whether you've heard of David Crosby, the musician with Crosby, Stills and Nash. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, and he's Floyd Crosby's son, and I've often tried to get him to talk because his bitterness toward John Wayne and the House on American Activities Committee because of what it did to his father. And basically killed his A-list career. Yeah, High Noon is a little bit like the film that that uh, really could. Like you uh, brought up Gary Cooper, who was the main star. When the film comes out, he, I believe he's fifty-one. And there's a lot of there are a lot of stars who some people might have said were past their heyday. Um, the the uh, his rival. Uh, for being sheriff. I'm trying to remember the, the guy's name. And they always referred to him in the movie as the kid. That guy was like 39 at the time of the film. And I think, <laughs> yeah, I think the woman that plays Louise is a little older. Um, the only one that was really that kind of like her age fit the casting, at least you'd think on the script was, um, of course, uh, Jean Kelly, who that was, sorry, Grace Kelly. And that was her first big role. Um, what were what were some of the interesting things you found out while you're putting together this documentary about the production high noon? Was there things that you weren't aware of or you found clarity in working on this project? Well, one thing I found out, and I did not know this, Grace Kelly would do her scenes with Gary Cooper and then rush off and go into her dressing room and just break down and cry. 
And when the film was over, the, the last day, she went to the rap party and then flew home back to New York because she said, I would do those scenes with Cooper and I would see everything happening through his eyes. He was just magnificent. And I knew how awful I was, but how wonderful he was to me. Off camera, we'd work together, we'd joke together. Never did he, was he critical of turning to Zinnemann, Crossman saying, we can't do this shot, what the hell? There was no, and she said he was so good that she said, I knew I'd never be that kind of an actor. And she went back to the stage in New York and did a play after it. And I, I, I found that interesting because I think she's quite good. I, I think that she captures the awkwardness of the character, a woman who's not really at home in the town. I, I, I the youth thing works in the end for me because he's looking for a new life a new way to to a new world to exist in and she offers that i'm sure that you're not you wouldn't be allowed to do that movie today without casting for high noon uh this for some people was like it seems like this is the highlight of their career or near the end of the career um you mentioned before of course, of its main writer, who was um, pushed hard on for being potentially a communist by the House on Americans Committee. How many people moved on in their careers to a better place from that? But how many people also, unfortunately, kind of were pushed aside or had to move elsewhere? Well, Carl Foreman certainly uh, is the main one as the screenwriter. He was blacklisted and had he was able to move to England before they took his passport. And he wrote scripts under assumed names. In fact, Cooper acted as a go-between for Foreman to, and for Fred Zinnemann when he did Hot Full of Rain. Foreman wrote that script, but under an assumed name. And then what is just awful about Foreman is that he wrote Bridge on the River Kwai, which is a huge, I don't know if it's remembered today, but David Lane, and hugely popular one. Every award, best picture, best director, best actor, and best screenplay, best adapted screenplay. However, Foreman and Michael Wilson, a co-writer, had been blacklisted, so their names weren't allowed to be on it. And the author of the novel, it's a French novel, man's name Pierre Boulle. They put his name on as their screenplay writer. And when it won the Academy Award, this French guy goes up to get it who can't speak English. And it was just awful. That, uh, uh, Foreman. <laughs> uh, you know, he also wrote uh, and produced a movie called Guns of Navarro. Uh, Foreman. I, again, I don't know if that's remembered, but Foreman, because he was so just so touched and moved by Gary Cooper's support of him during the making of it, uh, refusing to threatening to walk off the film if they took his name off the screenwriter, that ever after he sent Cooper his 
script for first refusal, including Bridge on the River Kwai, which William Holden did, Guns and Avron, Gregory Peck did, another movie called The Key that William Holden did, and Cooper was just too old to do them. But Foreman, more than, well, Floyd Crosby, the cinematographer, his career never really recovered. He, he never was at that level. Uh, Lloyd Bridges started, he was out of film for a while when he was blacklisted, and then name names, but when he came back, they were little indie movies until he made it on television. Uh, it's something called Sea Hunt. It, it's uh, uh, Stanley Kramer went on to do other big budget movies, but they became message movies. He did something called The Defiant Ones, Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Judge oh, yeah. Nuremberg, um, Inherit the Wind. And it's not that they're not good and powerful and worthy movies, but there's a message to them. And High Noon, the message is hard to find. It's why A can look at it and say, it's really about Gary Cooper's Joe McCarthy, and he's hunting down, the saving the town from communists. Whereas others can say he's a lone man saving Hollywood from the Joe McCarthy's. It, it, it's such a rich, complex screenplay. I think that's why it endures. Yeah, it is interesting. I think both sides, even today in the culture work, both kind of claim the movie as as representative of their own. Because, like you, you know, for the for conservatives, they will kind of look at like, oh, look, you know, here's this tough guy standing alone, uh, fighting crime and anarchy. And then people on the left, you know, they see it, they're like, oh, you know, he's like you were pointing out, you know, he's standing for freedom of speech, and it's about pushing against hard forces you know it's really a, a more just a universal story that really appeals i think that's why 70 years later it's it's still influential as it is one thing you point out in your documentary is that um all the metaphors that are used in like news headlines using high noon um yeah, yeah. and that continues to this day i don't even know if not, uh, i'm not sure there is another movie from 70 years ago where that is still true um, one of the people that really was hard on the production and kind of tried to cause problems the whole way through was John Wayne. I was not aware of this. And to the point that um, John Wayne was so such an antagonist, this whole process that Gary Cooper, who was on leave filming a different movie in Mexico, he's like, if I win Best Picture, you know, uh, John Wayne can accept it. You know, it was kind of like this um, in joke. But then the crazy did happen. <laughs> And uh, Gary Cooper actually won Best Picture. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yes. Uh, uh, Anthony Quinn told me the story of uh, they were down in Mexico filming a movie together. And Quinn had been nominated for Viva Zapata as Best Supporting Actor. And he wanted to go up to the Academy Awards, but Cooper wasn't going. And Cooper was Anthony Quinn's idol. He just whatever. He had saved his career 20 years earlier in a movie, his first movie, Over Plainsman. And 
when Cooper wasn't going, Quinn told me, well, if Cooper wasn't going to do it, I'm not doing it. And then during the, they put a radio in the, uh, this huge room at this set and to listen to it. But Cooper, as it was on, grabbed a bottle of wine and Quint saw him going out and Barbara Stanwyck was in the movie too. And she grabbed a bottle of wine and went out. <coughs> Pardon me. And Quint said, I wanted to stay and listen to see if I won. But damn, if Coop wasn't going to do it, I wasn't. So I grabbed a bottle of wine. And they went up on a hill and just lay down, staring up at the heavens. And Quinn said, Cooper happened to tell us that he had been in Cuernavaca the week before. And he bumped into John Wayne. And Quinn said, did you pop him one? And Cooper said, no, I asked him if he'd accept my award. And Quinn said, what? And Stanwyck was shocked. And Cooper, this great sense of humor, said, yeah, but what's the son of a bitch going to say if I win? And, of course, he did win. And Wayne goes up. And then talk about a son of a bitch. He talks about how he's got to talk to his agent and find out why he didn't get offered high noon and get to do roles like this. When here he was during the entire production, trying to shut it down, get Cooper to walk off, you know, the, the hypocrisy is. There's also all over the internet, which isn't particularly important, that John Wayne was first offered the role and turned it down, mm -hmm. which just isn't true. He, he, he was never, many actors were offered the role and turned it down, but John Wayne wasn't one of them. Yeah, Charlton Heston was one, I think. Uh, Russell Kirk is another. Yeah, some really big names. It, it is a fascinating movie. Uh, how that came together, uh, it's, an, it's, it's a continued endearing influence. I like that story about uh, Gary Cooper. It seems like the character he was in High Noon is kind of reflective of who he was as a person. Yeah, that's what Carl Foreman... I had done a documentary many years ago on the friendship between Gary Cooper and Ernest Hemingway. They were each other's best friends the last 20 years of their life. And I, when I first heard about it, I thought that seems impossible, given Gary Cooper's image, this hillbilly, a cowboy, not particularly bright, and Hemingway's just the opposite. And Hemingway's opinion, Hemingway, Cooper came to represent to Hemingway the real-life personification of his heroes on the page. It was fascinating. Robert Jordan from Whom the Bell Tolls, Frederick Henry from Farewell to Arms. Just in, he, Hemingway was just in awe of, of Cooper as a human being. And Carl Foreman came to say, Fred Zimmerman decided in 1961 in the spring to renewed his marriage vows after 25 years. And it was in April of 61. And they needed, each needed a, someone to stand for them during the ceremony. And Fred Zimmerman asked Gary Cooper to do it. And Cooper was just weeks from his own death. Got off his, was basically a deathbed and went and 
served as the investment. Fred Zinn was just shocked at this 181-pound male beauty down to 120 pounds and that. But, yeah, he, he must have been a remarkable man. However, this you don't, you can cut out. He, he was a womanizer. I mean, uh, Warren Beatty said after Coop, we're all amateurs. And he was having, he was living with the actress Patricia Neal. He had separated from his wife. He was living with this actress Patricia Neal. At the same time, he was having an affair with Grace Kelly during the production. Oh my gosh. Patricia Neal. I got to be good friends with her late. She lived across town here in New York. And she told me, I've been trying to get on the set because I knew of all the problems. And Coop was so tired when we get home and talking about the pressure. I wanted to get on the set. And he kept telling me, no, no, you don't want to get on. It's too much. So one day I just showed up and it was lunchtime. And Coop gets me aside and says, all right, now everybody's going to be kind of embarrassed seeing you. So you don't have to worry. So she said, I'm sitting across from Grace Kelly, who had her face down the entire time. And it dawned on me later. Gary was having an affair with Grace Kelly. And that's why she wouldn't look me in the eye. She never once looked me in the eye. And then as the meal ended up, she got up and scooted away. And she said Coop was really uneasy too. But uh, so he he was a womanizer. It, 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 it just is astonishing. When you go back, Carol Lombard, Marlena Dietrich, Ernst Ingrid Berg, and them all. Uh, old Hollywood was almost like a almost like another <laughs> yeah. planet back then. So yeah. um, we talked about the the film High Noon, but let's talk a little bit about um, your documentary. How did that How did that come together? Uh, how does one get to make their own PBS documentary, John? Uh, by being lucky and having financing outside of the uh, needing the structure of a PBS, an HBO, Netflix, or whatever it happens to be. And I had been uh, friends with Maria Cooper. I'd known her for a long time, and she was able to introduce me to people. I, I'd been friends with Jonathan Foreman. He was a film critic here in New York at the time. So... I was, and then I I don't like to use famous people. Uh, I, I, I prefer under the radar interview subjects because you're not used to hearing them. And I was lucky in that... Uh, I would pick up the phone and I'd call someone out of the blue, just explain what's going on. And when I was doing the Elmore Leonard documentary, I had a lot of footage that I had used that I'd gotten from him when I was doing the Cooper Hemingway documentary. And I called Leonard and said, 
you know, we have all this extra footage. Can we do a documentary on you? He said, yeah. And he said, who, are you gonna, who else are you going to get to talk about me? And I said, oh, that won't be a problem. And I found really terrific writers and that for uh, four black women who are big Elmore Leonard fans. And that had such a texture to it. And no one was there to say to me, oh, you, you can't have them. You've got to get uh, Stephen King, uh, some big writer. And I, mm -hmm. I, I didn't have to worry about that. And it's the same thing. You can just really pick up the phone and people are available. It's really a, uh, I'm not sure that Others are aware of that, but just get their, somehow get their number or their representative. And the representative is often uh, open to hearing you. And if, when you explain it with some, let them know it's not going to be some cheap, cheesy thing. You usually get to anybody. And I, I've been very lucky that way. I haven't, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. No, your, your documentary definitely has an authenticity because you're bringing on uh, people who have firsthand or secondhand knowledge of the production. You have a lot, like you said, um, uh, she, the name is, you have Maria, of course, and you also have like the son of uh, Freeman. You have a lot of people involved. One of the surprises, and I, I kind of got a laugh out of this, one of the surprises, one of your experts who actually is surprisingly like, has expertise on high noon is President Bill Clinton. I did not expect that. That was kind of like, I came out of left field and I was like, what is going on here? But if by the end of the documentary, it turns out he actually knows quite a bit about the film. It's his favorite film. He showed it, I think, 17 or 19 times in the White House. He would have people come in, other uh, dignitaries, other politicians, and make them watch it. Yeah, it, it's his, when we called him, he said, oh, God, yes. And we're supposed to do it at his offices up on 125th Street, Harlem. But there was a snowstorm, so we couldn't get back up here from Washington. And I went down there. And we went in, and the handlers were there. So you only have 15 minutes and this sort of thing. I was on with Bill Clinton for 40 minutes. And they, the handlers kept saying, you have other interviews? He said, not like I know. Not like I know. He, he, he he, I'd throw out a question and he would know, have knowledge of it and offer insights that I hadn't been aware of. He was just terrific. I know that's so interesting. Was it, uh, was it a neat experience for you getting to, to meet a former president like that? Oh, it was great. And since I happen to be a huge admirer of Bill Clinton, you know, when it when it first came, I, I this is a, a restructured version of it. It was originally two thousand six. This documentary, and mm -hmm. I redid it and added sections in that. And it was on, came out on one of the DVDs as an extra after it been on TV. And originally, I opened the documentary with Bill Clinton. He's there saying it's meant something to me forever. 
And I read a review on Amazon. That's why you should never read reviews. The guy said, High Noon is my favorite movie. I couldn't wait to watch this. I turned it on, and the first thing I saw was Bill Clinton. I yanked it out of the uh, machine, <laughs> and I put it in the microwave, and I, <laughs> I destroyed it. So there are those who might feel differently. Yeah, when I was rewatching it yesterday, I was uh, visiting my mom, and she sat down to watch it. And she is she is not not a fan of Mr. <laughs> Clinton, but in the end, she she did say something like, "Wow, he actually is an expert." <laughs> I knew. <laughs> so, uh, you, if you were able to, if you guys were able to win her over, that's uh, quite a statement in my book. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. Say so, hi to your mom. <laughs> so. Uh, you seem to be pretty happy with the film. Uh, what are some of the things you've heard back about the documentary? And the, what are what are some projects you think you'd like to go and try to tackle next? Uh, we've heard some very good things back. The, the uh, uh, response from some of the critics we're getting is very good. And are talking about how it is uh, so about today, the... the uh, the civic complacency, the the wh where democracy is going in America, and how High Noon reflects that. The, the there's a British magazine called The Economist, and two months ago they had a front page article on Liz Cheney and talking about the January sixth committee and where America is in its politics. And the front cover was a drawing of Liz Cheney and Will Kane as Will Kane, the black vest, the tie, hat, and looking like Gary Cooper, but it's Liz Cheney and she's facing down Republicans in the House and around. And that is the sort of thing that High Noon still captures. And I. some of the reviews have pointed that out, that in fact, a couple of them said they had never thought of it that way. They had thought of the blacklist. They had thought of it as a terrifically tense Western, but it had never looked at it as a universal political statement about democracy. So that was very encouraging. And that was nice. As far as doing something more, there's a writer who has been forgotten, but at one time, the 20th century, his name is Graham Greene. And he was, he's a British writer. He's also wrote a lot of screenplays, including one for a movie called The Third Man. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with Orson Welles was in it. Uh, and I always wanted to do a documentary on him. So... We'll see. All right. Well, I hope it happens. You did an excellent job with this one. Uh, and I, I appreciate it. You know, High Noon is a special film. I think I said this at the beginning of the interview. Uh, it meant a lot. It means a lot, something to my grandpa, especially. Uh, and that story about leadership and standing up for something, especially when it looks like maybe it's not going to turn out well for you. And when you don't have the support of others or the people that are supposed to be involved, I mean, on so many things, uh, 
it, that's such a true statement. That's such a universal human truth about reality and having to, you know, face up to certain fears and difficulties. It, it really is a, a testament of time that it's probably going to, you know, as long as people are interested in film, I think there will always be some people interested in the film High Noon. So, uh, John, where can people find you if they want to check out your work or watch the Inside High Noon or any of your other documentaries? Oh, man, I'm not good at this. <laughs> and my daughter, who's involved in the company we're doing, she'll grit her teeth at my acting this way. I, talking about myself like that or where to find me, then there, there's a... There's a uh, a website for High Noon, I, I think, and there's a website for Elmo Leonard. It's a website for the True Gen, Cooper and Hemingway, for others that I've done. I think you can just go to InsideHighNoon.com or something. Just just go for Inside High Noon or Elmo Leonard, uh, but don't try to write. You'll just... Yeah, so the just looking it up here, the website for John Maholland, if you want to learn more about his work, it's johnmaholandnyc.com. And he has on his page links to di different pieces of his work. On the front page, we have, of course, Inside High Noon, Director's Cut, where he talks about the making of the film. And then right next to it, of course, like you just said, Elmore Leonard, but don't try to write documentary explores life, works, legacy, and of author. Elmore Leonard, I cannot speak today, sorry. <laughs> Author Elmore Leonard airing and streaming on public television nationwide. Well, John, this was a lot of fun. I'd love to talk to you again in the future about some of your other projects. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a delight. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening today. This has been Culturescape. And uh, until we see you next time, keep on geeking out. Oh, 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 o